This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm, I have to say I'm breathless seeing this film on the big screen. And it's just... Rem- I, I already use the term remarkable, <laughs> but it's remarkable that... Um, your detective work took you so many places and to to so many different time periods and I also really love the way you bring the past into the present so I you mentioned that you were inspired to research Alice uh, or Alice and when you when you found her in this part of a larger project mm-hmm. um, as part of a larger project so how did you when did you know, after you started kind of diving into her career, when did you know that you had to do this project? Uh, well, first of all, thank you everybody for coming. I'm super excited uh, to see the love for this film, and I haven't slept in 10 years. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still drinking a lot of coffee. Um, I had seen a, a show on AMC at the time. This was before... Um, Walking Dead or Breaking Bad. Uh, it was a show uh, about women pioneers in cinema. Uh, it was called Real Models. And um, Shirley MacLaine was introducing Alice Guy-Blochet. Uh Barbara Streisand had created the show. There was all these different people that I'd never heard of. Mary Pickford you hear about because she's an actor. Um, I never went to film school. But the more I heard about this woman, uh, I was like, oh, the first female filmmaker, a producer, she had her own studio. Why do I not know about this person? Mm-hmm. And um, I think like anything, when you're interested in something, you start researching, Googling, which didn't have much. And then you start asking friends. And all the people that I talked to had no idea what I was talking about. And then I discovered her memoirs. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is just unbelievable. (laughs) Is this woman for real? I thought she was fiction. And um, I was obsessed. I was infected by Alice. And I just said to myself, I can't believe it. I have to do something about it because I just love everything about this woman and her importance. And I, I just I have to do something. And then I discovered Joan, um, who had done an, an exhibition at the Whitney for Alvis's, uh work in 2009 uh, through a book that was published for the exhibition uh, at Yale, and they connected me to the Whitney, and I contacted her, and I roped her into the project. <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. And it really does seem like this beautiful moment of a match made in heaven between you two. Um, And like you provided so many leads that produced results. We both, we're both detectives. I think we both like finding things that are uncovered that can move things uh, forward. And relentless. Yeah. Of, Of doing things. And we're also very different. Um, 
I do things in a long form and Pamela does them in short form, so we've learned the opposite from each other. And I've worked on projects that have taken five years, ten years, twenty years, and that's very different for Pamela, that you really need stamina and persistence and patience. And to Not my strong suit. Not. The patience. But part. developing. Yes. That's why it's such a perfect collaboration. So, um, okay, so this movie is so immense. It's an epic undertaking and yes. over 10 years that you're like a symphony conductor. And I, I'm just wondering how you brought all of those threads together and how you organized things and formally worked things out with the animation and those moments when we see the superimposition of Alice Guy's films on those actual locations. Just all of that is so exquisite. And you bring the, the, her films and, and her to life so beautifully that, um, that I just have to hear about that process. Well, first it was cloning, so I had to make sure I had a couple of myself out there. <laughs> um, I wanted to do something different. Um, I wanted to, you know, I love history. I'm a complete nerd, but um, I'm actually going back to school now to finish my degree. I did not finish uh, college when I obviously was doing this, and um, but I just love history and and. How can you make something like this exciting for an audience who doesn't have any idea about something that happened 120-something years ago? So I just wanted to have this detective story that was accessible where people would feel the emotional journey that I was going through, and I wanted to take people along with us as we were uncovering everything because um, I just felt that the behind the curtain, if you will, of research, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, you see it here and there, but I really wanted uh, the audience to understand what it takes to bring somebody back. It wasn't that she was completely lost because she was known in academia, but what does it take to bring somebody to the masses and uh, educate people along the way and create something that's exciting that will have a long life in education, but is also entertaining. And because I come from the world of entertainment, I, I do opening credits for films and movie marketing, and I love archival. Um, so taking all those elements and, and uh, you know, the face recognition, that would have been exciting no matter what. But to find that person took a minute. But I was like, I have to do this because I want to know, we want to correct it, but we want to have the audience in on it with us. Mm -hmm. So I felt also that period doesn't have that much footage. You know, and, and you have all these books, and that's not necessarily interesting on the screen. So I used what I do for my day job in, in um, design and animation and editing uh, to bring her story to life so it would have a cinematic feel and not just feel like a history lesson, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. It's also a race against the clock movie because yes. the early films either have disintegrated, gone, undis I prefer to say yet to be discovered, mm -hmm. but um, so that's one. 
race against the clock because the witnesses were older, whether it was Claire Clouseau, who was one of the, uh, was the co-editor of the memoirs, whether it was Cecile Starr. They knew um, the life. They knew the work. They were the first people who introduced the material in MoMA, let's say, in the 80s, and then nothing happened. Alice had been rediscovered many times and faded away. It didn't last. So I think we were lucky in the timing and took advantage of it. And the priority, really, of interviewing people who were the oldest first mm-hmm. um, and make sure they were recorded. But um, And showing as many films as possible. And I kept seeing this guy, he passed away, unfortunately, the, the location person. A lot of people have passed away in this film, it's very sad. But thank God we recorded them. But he had a website called Cinetourist, and I kept coming across it. And he's like, this film was filmed here. And if he would, like, measure the grass... And it's like, at this point, this shot happened to all these films. I'm like, who is this person? And then he had some of Alice's films. And I was like, you know, what if we did a tour? And now people ask me if it's a real tour. And I was like, it can be. But, uh, you know, just walking in her footsteps and understanding what it was like to secure locations and get permits. I mean, she's one of the first people to, like, do stuff like that. So I just wanted to do stuff that, you know... I've traveled, I've seen things, so why don't we use those kind of elements that, you know, are exciting to people that go and, and do tours, etc. Why not have something like that? And, you know, my inspirations are from my personal life or things that I've seen at museums or the love of postcards or certain things. So you mix all of that together and, you know, you have it. We also have to credit certain feminist scholars for starting in the 70s and 80s to bring the information forward, as limited as it was. Um, f- feminist and female film festivals, particularly for me, the Festival de Film de Femmes de Crete that had symposia and showed her films and was the first place I saw them um, in like 1994 after reading this much in uh, the Herald Tribune about. Uh, the upcoming Gaumont centenary and here was Alice Gee who did this, that and the other and as typically maybe this will happen to you, you leave here and you say call a friend and say, did you hear this? I can't believe, blah blah which led me to a friend who led me to that festival and the scholars and the symposium and seeing the films Mm -hmm. So you mentioned film festivals and I know that in the late 1960s, early 1970s, that uh, women's film festivals, as they were proliferating, um, and women were sharing discoveries like Alice Gee, that this sort of led to feminist film scholars uh, undertaking the explorations of her work. But that was the first time I encountered her name. And, And I just, it was, you know, just... It was like the, many of the people that said, how did I not know and about And the irony her? is that the scholarship and the theory advanced ahead of knowledge of the films. And when the films were discovered and shown and preserved, I mean, that was another important part of the story, mm-hmm. preserving films that were discovered, that were found. Because once the name is known, people had a different way of looking for things. When they were asked to look, not for the name Alice, because things were Alice or Alice Guy Blaché, mm-hmm. Things weren't labeled, but to look for Gaumont films or look for ones that had these sprockets, discoveries were made. Well, her name was misspelled a lot, too. 
We would research misspellings to Purpose find things. to find it. Oh, my God. But, I mean, of course, we st- I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people, a lot of women and men before. I think what's different about this film is that everybody could do uh, so much. For me, I had the Internet. People did not have the Internet. I mean, you could Skype with people, you could FaceTime, you could email them, you can contact us, all these different ways of finding people. But also, um, I went after the funding. You know, I tell people in, in, uh, in scholarly work, you do a thesis, you could, only, you could only do so much. And budgetarily, it's very difficult, and it takes years. I went after the whole pizza, which is insane. And, you know, it took a lot of time. But I wanted to make those people along the way that I met proud. It's like, hey... This, this is going to go somewhere because what you did is helping me to move things forward mm-hmm. and then we can get it wider. Our, our goal, I mean, my goal was like, I wanted people in Japan to talk about her, which, you know, it's opening in Japan soon. You know, little girls like, oh, Halloween, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And um, to become more in the pop culture, which is what's happening mm-hmm. slowly. And also the context was very important until as soon as 10 years ago, it was early films were only to be shown on 35 millimeter film. Restoring was to be on film, not digital. It made it prohibitive. It it kept these things in the dark. Before that, archives were very, very secretive. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it wasn't clear who owned these things. Even or in the who, U.S. film clubs. Or who directed them. People like Rod, Rod, what is it, Rodney um, McDowell mm-hmm. were arrested, you know, investigated in Congress. You were not, did you own the right? If you were, you were a private person, could you own a film and share it with someone else? Or did the film company? Mm-hmm. And it was a very secretive, very often male groups who shared these films and showed them to each other. It was off limits getting access to archives, if you could get it, you would have to travel to them. In the past 10 years, films have been digitized, they've been shared. Um, you can access things, even on legal, illegal, whatever. You can see many Alice Guy Blaché films on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But many you can't, and they only exist in Be Natural because funders right. paid to, you know, Private funders paid to oh. get the nitrate transferred, or for example, The Empress is a beautiful film that's in here. It didn't have inner titles, so the French Cinematheque refused to release it because it didn't have all the inner titles. We had to fight with them for two years. Every story, it's like that image, that took five years. That image mm. took seven years. This image took three years. But, but today we're living in a very different world. Yeah. And that's so shocking well, to be able of the to film, say it's accessible, well, those films. Yes. Yeah. You know. And the credits are in the film. You can go back and find the archive. And if you want to pursue more, you can do that. Yes. It's, open, it's like open source, the end credits. And what I think is wonderful is how many of her films you show so that you bring the films to life. And, I mean, I was seeing several of her films, bits of her films for the first time, watching her film. And then that they... You, you bring her to life, too. We have such a sense of her personality so that um, my experience with her was, as you mentioned, is entirely academic. And so to see her on screen and so she's so delightful and so spirited 
I just thought it made such sense that she is the author of those films. That's, and, yeah. and she tells her story. And she Give her the me. space and the time to tell her own story. I mean, I remember um, when I curated the show at the Whitney, we showed 90 of her films over the course of three months mm. in programs that if you came at various times, you could see the whole earth. So many scholars had never seen more than five or ten. And the fact that it was published in a book by Yale and there were film scholars for the first time, not just, you know, odd people researching on their own. So it's, it's like a cumulative wave. And watching it, I mean, even at the beginning watching this today, I'm, I'm shocked at how much is in there and how fast it goes by and how many times you really need to watch it to pick up all the details and the substance. I have ADD. <laughs> Maybe. So, do you have a favorite or a couple of favorite Alice Guy films? Such a loaded question. I know, question. it's like favorite um, babies. <laughs> mustache? I, 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 like, I just like her films for different reasons. You know, the, the way I compile them together, it shows her growth. You know, she's growing up with cinema. Um, I love Ocean Wave. That always gets me. I love Consequences of Feminism. Um, Sticky Woman, for sure. But The Empress is all about f- cameras and photography, surveillance, um, secret trysts, blackmail, the use of photography. It's just incredible. And female hero saves the female hero. And this, too, I think you do a beautiful job of... Um, conveying how diverse she was and how oriented to comedy and to entertainment and also to some serious social issues. So, um, And we keep discovering, you know, we know she was so early, earlier than the credited directors of close-ups. We know how early the, the um, hand-tinted color films, but her subject matter, not just children and giving them agency, but we were talking about it earlier today, discovering that um, in the, when we were researching for another project, the history of Statue of Liberty, and hundreds and hundreds of films are made, and the earliest one is credited to Charlie Chaplin. And thinking, I know we've seen the um, Statue of Liberty, and going back to Alice's films, you know, the making of American Citizen, when the couple gets off the boat, and He's harassing his wife, and the American gentleman comes to teach them. The Statue of Liberty is seen right between those pairs. That's 1912. And 1912. But, I mean, the main thing is... She saw it. For Alice, is that this movie, for me, it's like going on top of the mountain, screaming like, Hey, (laughs) this woman was at the beginning of cinema, and cinema is invented by both genders. And... That's what this movie is for me. It's like this woman was there. She did so many things that influence us today, especially the grammar of storytelling. And that she was a businesswoman. Yes. That she ran a studio. I mean, also in 1912, there's a quote of hers. I'm going to mangle it at the moment. But she says, there's nothing anywhere in the film industry that a woman can't do as easily as a man. And no reason that she can't be successful. 1912. You guys will be able to ask questions. Don't worry. (laughs) So... Um. So um, I was just thinking about uh, one of the stories I I had um, seen was that when her husband kind of took over the business, 
that she said something about him. It, it always is like the counterpoint to that quotation you just mentioned. Um, that when they started having business meetings and so on, and it was all the gentlemen in the room, that she was um, basically disinvited because, as they put it, they couldn't smoke their cigars, yes, comfortably with with her present. Um, and so, you know, I just thought, but she practically invented everything. And so that I just, there was such a, kind of crushing um, realization that that she's still subject to those those rules and regulations around gender. It's also important to remember she's a mother. Two children while she's building her big studio, $100,000 studio in Fort Lee. She's posing. You see her posing pregnant with the second child there. Um, She figured out a way, as anyone else does who works and has a family, to do what she could to the extent that she could. And she had a lot of resources and she had a lot of disappointments in her life. And the fact, I mean, I think one of the painful things about learning about her life was all of the letters we discovered after she went back to France. Mm-hmm. That she was taking care of a sick mother, she was taking care of sick children, she was looking for work, it was the depression. I mean, it's at every traumatic stage in her life, she was in the midst of it, including not getting um, alimony from her husband and finding that at her age, a white-haired woman of 50 could not get a job. Mm-hmm. So one of the um, fascinating aspects of the film, too, is her efforts to, you know, this, to re to be rediscovered, to um, correct the record. And there's so many moments that are just, you know, heartbreaking that she is continually working to do that. And it really takes your film for the work that she aimed to do to be completed. That's, uh, that's, yeah, it's really terrible yeah, when, the, when Gaumon dies and everything. And I feel like I'm her last, I did the last chapter for her. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, Alice, this is, this is for you, what you didn't get to do. I'm just going to finish it. That's, also that's the, the way I look at it. The letters um, between Alice and Gaumont and the respectful professional thing, her being invited to write the Gaumont history and in fact when you see her um, it wasn't published because he died but when you look at the structure of her own book the first part is exactly as she tells him that she's writing for him the technical part she finished and she was writing the anecdotal part and that's exactly how her autobiography memoir is set up and he was really her most enduring relationship I think as far as him recognizing her importance to, yeah. But nobody, it's actually a discovery because um, his handwriting for real is like hieroglyphics. So when I went to France and, you know, found the papers, etc., they didn't even know what it said. (laughs) So then I had to have a special person be able, from a different generation, be able to decipher and translate all of that because nobody could read. I mean, it's really, it looks borderline hieroglyphics. So um, I think it's basically woken France up in a way because they didn't, 
embrace it as much as they as they should have. But now that this information is out and it's legible, and people are understanding these things, it's creating more excitement to maybe we review that period, you know, look at that era again and see what else can be discovered, and you know. Also taking her, ownership of that. Her story underscores how important it is for a filmmaker to be a writer and an editor at the same time. I mean, from the very earliest thing, she had stories. She wrote them down in little sainets, um, and she kept writing. And, and part of the strength of her movies are the voices in them and the wit. I mean, A House Divided is so funny. The notes that you read are just... She understood the medium. She understood how to tell the story written and large on the screen. I mean, it's not surprising that she could write her autobiography so well. It is surprising that it couldn't get published for so many years. Right. But it took two ladies so, uh, to I... be the editors and publishers of it, and Musidora. So... Um... There were many wonderful discoveries for you both along the way. Are there any that just stand out as, I mean, among the many that stand out that really... Well, obviously the pins. I mean, that's ridiculous. Those phone calls are out of control. And to discover the nephew, her relationship with the nephew. But also uh, the tape on the floor, the guy in Belgium with the party hat, with the tapes, you know. I kept saying, look in your closet and, you know... um, uh, the, disco- the discovery that um, Cecile Starr was still alive, and she recommended we get in touch with Maxine, and Maxine had the tape of Simone that the baking. Pamela took all over L.A. to get um, restored. I mean, that was such a crazy series of events. Or, or just coming across uh, the reference by Hitchcock. I mean, it's wonderful. <laughs> It's really, it's, it's shocking. And, and the Eisenstein. Yeah, it's really shocking. Because I thought the tape was going to be the film. It's like, okay, bake this tape, cut some stuff together, that's it. You know, I don't think, you know. But I couldn't help it. And the more I looked, it's like, well, maybe, you know, we could find stuff. Maybe we'll find descendants. And very discouraged along the way. What are you wasting your time? This is going to take forever, you know. Documentaries is just editing. What is that? Don't do that. It's going to cost a fortune. You're never going to get it done. It's not going to go anywhere. You're never going to find anything. You're never going to find any films. Never say never to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I also have to say that you make doing history really cool. I my historian's heart just soared when I saw this because I thought I'm going to show this film to my students and they're going to see what excitement there is to find things and to dig through boxes and make all of those discoveries and then to put it all together. And there's so much more work to do for your students to do now and in the future. And since you're spreading the word, there are more people that have come on board with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, are there any surprises there? With as as far as the kind of the um, the people that you've inspired to carry on, or or I think to... the surprise was inspiring ourselves to do a narrative biopic about her. Yeah, we're doing using the film. unused material that's that we couldn't use in the film. There's so much material that was left on the cutting room floor. Um, 
that's shocking and um, it's, it's more it's very dramatic she had kind of a very very dramatic Greek tragedy in a way so that's that's fun um, but the research is continuing people are showing her films they're restoring them they're putting music to them uh, the, the distributor who distributed Be Natural Kino has a DVD with her work which I think is also streaming um, not all the films but a lot of them because yeah. the thing is it's not just about showing the films if you show the films by themselves they need to have the music so many it's so expensive it's such an expensive endeavor if it wasn't for the funders that paid you know and donated to the film this movie is completely donation based then um, you know it would have uh, not happened but I think the important thing about that is it's one thing to have the passion and an idea another to raise the money another for people to want to give you money I mean a, a, a museum director colleague of mine always said money follows mission and that's true people gave money to this film because they wanted to know more about the subject and join the ride they didn't do it because they're going to get money back independent filmmaking doesn't do, do that but to do it in a not-for-profit way made it very clean and very clear what people expected and what satisfaction they could get in return but it's rare I mean you have to pound the pavement you have to cold call obviously I have experienced cold calling <laughs> and uh, you just you have to keep trying because if you express the passion people will you know like John says will follow but you can't give up you have to keep yeah. in all areas you have to get the money you have to bug people to see the films you have to bug people to show your film distribution you have to bug people to you know show it in different countries and um, be able to use the photo on a poster you know that was a discovery too that photo that's in the poster the life of Christ that whole thing was discovered completely by accident I was clearing something else to use in the film and then I said what else do you have in your archive oh we have this stuff that says Jesus on it and oh can we see what that looks like oh you have to pay for it but we're only sending it to you low res so then I have to call a funder it's like hey this could be something I don't know I'll pay for it I mean to be able to have people that are standing behind you that are excited to see what we're going to uncover it might lead to nothing but most of them delivered and those were pictures of ours directing the life of Christ that we've never seen before so also <clears throat> we are lucky that we were riding and doing this at a time when the entertainment industry is totally disrupted and mixed up and a mess so there's no reason for anyone here elsewhere to wait and get permission to do things do it yourself the other thing is it's really important to know how many women funded this women have quite a bit of money this day and they can control their own money they don't have to ask permission to anybody else to do it and they freely gave large sums as it also on the opposite end of the spectrum Hugh Hefner I mean there's a lot of contradictions in this film that are make it lively <laughs> you get it where you can <laughs> Um, so did you say you're working on a biopic about her? Yes. And how, how far into the process is it? Well, it's, we have multiple, multiple projects. We have several projects. But, but it's completely on. different. Um, 
uh, structure than be natural. Um, yeah, it's going to be epic. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it's it's the highs, the lows, the you know, just such a long and sometimes tortured journey. Probably multiple hours. Not to mention how long she lived. Yeah, that's that was. That's annoying. another part. That was annoying because working on this, it's like, can you just die already, lady? When you're making this, it's like, oh my god, you're already like 89. Please go. And uh, yeah, but it was just, you know, she she lived so long and she didn't get to see the result of all her hard work trying to restore herself. So that's you know the heartbreaking part. But still, but she did get to see. Some. some of them corrected, like in the scene in the yeah, film some. with a very arrogant historian, and she gives him the corrections, and he does make them. I love that she was relentless about that, um, mm-hmm. and that it eventually pays off, and that she's getting feted at the, um, by Henri Langlois, and that she's, um, I think I mispronounced his name. No, but, it's good. Um, Henri Langlois at the FIAF event. Yeah. It's nice, yeah. But then later, he says some awful things during the radio interview. Yeah, he's like, she's a Chanel lady. I don't think she did all this stuff. So it's... When they're talking in the silhouettes. Right, right. With the cigarette smoke. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But she just seemed, like, so happy and so... um, I think the thing you see when you see her on camera that stunned us is not just how beautiful she is, how charming she is, but how clever she is. Mm-hmm. And in reading her letters or reading her articles in movie press, she had several different voices. She had her public voice. She's a very elegant, professional lady. In her letters, they're devastatingly outspoken and angry and direct. And then she has the voice in her autobiography that's very kind of playful and moves around. Um, but she's got little hints. Hints of the more shocking things, yeah. And that's what the biopic will have, the for, more truth, like we're going to see the... Oh, for example, she talks about the problem that happened um, in making um, The Life of Christ mm. and a problem with the director, an assistant director who burned things and blah, blah, blah. In the letters, we find out that he had abused one of the actresses and she has him fired that day. And there's early sexual harassment that's going on. I mean, there's a lot of things that in the industry. It's, you know, me too before me too. Right, and then that um, when she's so direct in her letter to her husband about Lois Weber huh? that, um, mm-hmm. that she's so... Fierce and uh, I just that too is heartbreaking. Um, yeah. And in her other letters, she would have stayed with him and beseeched him to not get divorced, that he could have a life, they could live separate lives. She was a very proper French lady and mother of her family and did not did not want to get divorced, even though the marriage was over. And religious. Catholic yeah. religious, yeah. All righty. Well, thank you all so much for coming. And You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.